Happy 2018, everyone. We're back from our month-long holiday hiatus with episode number 13 of the Rockonomics Podcast, where we talk to people in and around the music industry about their experiences, accomplishments, inspirations, and career highs and lows, while sprinkling in a little bit of the business aspect of it all. Our first guest of this new year is Hope Nichols, lead singer of the band Fetchin' Bones, who are at the forefront of the college radio scene in the 1980s. Although they never achieved mainstream success, they're credited with being grungy years before grunge and were praised for their electrifying live shows while opening for the likes of R.E.M., The Replacements, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Hope never stopped playing music and has fronted many bands since, including Sugar Smack, Snagglepuss, and is putting the wraps on a new album for her current band, It's Snakes. I met up with Hope at her clothing boutique called Boris and Natasha, and our conversation went along these lines. <laughs> it seems like it never fails. Um, so right away I wanted to ask you, uh, there was a, uh, let me find it. There was a reference to you guys. Cowpunk. Yeah. <laughs> is that a, is that We a, were saddled with that for a while. Is that a compliment or an insult? I think they were given it as a compliment. They is, were. Is it kind of like redneck punk or is that the... Um, yeah, or hillbilly punk. We used to get punk, which always made me happy. And um, hillbilly has a wonderful tradition, you know, southern tradition. And and um, cow punk, I'm not sure. What, <laughs> sure, who came up with that? I mean, it's a funny, it's a great term, but it is when you look at it, like, are you talking about like you know cow tipping locals? Or I mean, I grew up in a very rural area too, and but I kind of identify with it. But I'm not sure, you know, if it's like. Uh, you know, a more. Uh, I think there was a, a, a kind of um, a few bands back in the day that people would lump us with, like this band called Blood on the Saddle, and of course bands like Gun Club. So they had kind of a roots feel mm-hmm. and a regionalism kind of, but then also the punk ethos, which we definitely had. Okay. In our own, you know, punk, it's like the Song from the Saints, a really cool early. Um, kind of punk band from australia and and they did a song about how uh you know you can't be punk and wear the outfit too you have to be punk means that you're an outsider so that's how we always i've always thought we fit into things is that we don't fit in we're outsiders right so we didn't dress punk we dressed like we um just stood in a thrift store and started grabbing things and putting them on you know blindly right now i I don't want to get ahead of myself but just on that note you guys were you know uh from like 83 to 89 was fetching bones kind of time right right around then you were right in the thick of that kind Mm -hmm. of thrift store because i know you'll never be compared to madonna but that was you know madonna and cindy lopper and all those guys was very a thrift absolutely store vibe and yep uh but it was a great time, you know. Great very, time, very and those were two very, to me, like important women, fashion wise and music wise. Very inspirational and awesome to see women with that kind of um, idiosyncratic fashion sense becoming iconic. Right, right. Did you cross paths with either of those two in your travels? Never, never met either of them. Okay, which is kind of weird. Not that we would have been 
you know, running in the same exact circles. But right. I was in New York a lot, and those guys are very New York you know, centric. Very New York, right? Um, so you're originally from Davidson, is that correct? Yep. Beautiful little spot, yep. I'll say. And um, you know, back to this, you know, being complimented by being called cowpunk. Punk was something that kind of spoke to you or allowed you to, to mm-hmm. kind of see there is a DIY mentality that it's something yep. you can do. Did, did it, at the time, was it just something that, I guess, even what part of this podcast is about is, um, I, I guess, making it uh, ground level to how people can identify with musicians and the business and this and that. But did punk allow you to think like, oh, it's not as polished as it needs to be. It's not yes. as corporate as it needs to be. It's something, you know. Definitely. What, what were the punk bands that kind of spoke to you? And Well, you know, you- Patti Smith, for sure, right off the bat. A um, little bit in like Tom Petty's first and second record. Um, but I mean, I always liked a, a lot of people that weren't really the most popular. You right. know, I always loved people like um, Laura Nero and Joan Armatrading and um, Bonnie Raitt. Always the Rolling Stones. Um, Led Zeppelin, whatever, but people that, so some of them were huge, you know, giant, and some of them were teeny, but they all seem to kind of have their own, their own vibe, their own thing that they were doing that um, kind of transcended trends in certain ways. Mm -hmm. What was your source for discovering these artists? Back in the day, we'd go down to the, uh, to the hub, which was a place in, um, Davidson, where uh, Davidson College students and all the rest of us townies would shop, and you could get a milkshake and you could buy records there. So that was early, early on. Okay. Um, and then there were record shops, and I discovered Rolling Stone, and then I would go to the library at Davidson College and get the Village Voice and read Lester Bang's column and and just like be so excited about what was happening in New York and um you know reading a, what he was excited about and just right. reading Lester Bang's in general was exciting cuz he was like a almost like dadaist kind of writer right um well, it's funny about Lester this is something I got to know with Mark Kemp about mm-hmm. uh, oh, you know, cool. about discovering Bylines, like how yeah. did you discover this person, Lester Bangs? That like, hey, this guy, you know, this guy talks, you know, speaks to me. Well, first you have to discover somewhere where there where are people that are interesting that are writing, and that I was able to discover the Village Voice because my sister lived in t- in New York in the early seventies, and that's what she had in her apartment. Okay. So I looked at it there, and then I was like, oh, if I go to the library, I bet they have it there, and Davidson being a a cool college did subscribe to many publications and then you know you flip right to the music section just like you will in mark kemp's paper creative loafing now and right. you'll find writers and some of them are cool you know some of them are artists like lester bangs mm-hmm. that's interesting um so how did you get into actually uh playing in a band um Again, I think uh, of this moment when I was with my sister, the one who lived in New York and who this store, Boris and Natasha, is named for. Um, She's like, I heard this band I think you'd like. I was like, oh, really? Who? And she goes, they're called the B-52s. And I'm like, wow, what a great name. And so then I uh, probably flipped through Rolling Stone or 
I don't think Spin was maybe around then. Maybe it was. But anyway, I saw the cover and I was like, ooh, this is awesome. These look, guys look great. And it's two girls and three guys and they're from Georgia. And I listened to them and it sounded like they had never sung in the choir. They'd never sung at school and that their parents wouldn't like how they sang. And I was like, this sounds like something I could do. So I was really excited about just that kind of, again, the outsider thing, like no training, just a sheer gut, just desire to do it. And mm-hmm. the B-52s just exuded that exuberance of like, we're in a band and we're so happy to do this and we're not doing it based on anyone else's little plan for their career right so do you just grab the closest people you know next to you and, and start a band was this in Pretty high much. school that's okay. always been uh yep so i never had anybody really growing up in high school and and even in college until my senior year when i met aaron my husband and my whole life partner and obviously my musical partner for um if you know anything about our music We've always done bands together. The first five minutes that we met each other at a party, we determined that we would do, you know, try to make music together. You know, he said, what are you interested in? I said, I'm really interested in music. And um, he said, yeah, me too. I'm learning to play guitar. And I said, oh, wow, that's awesome. I said, I'm going to, I want to be a singer. And he goes, cool, we should, we should do something together. I'm like, cool. And so then we did acid together <laughs> moments after that. First things first. first. You were right off the bat, you know. <laughs> but no, it was like, like immediate. Um, and once you have one person to work with, this is something cool that Clem Burke told me. He was the dr- drummer for Blondie. for Blondie. We met him one time when we went down to see from Asheville. We went to Warren Wilson together. Okay. We went, we'd always come back to Charlotte to see shows. Um, Because it was a wonderful year. It was 1981, and there were amazing bands touring through the U.S., going to small clubs. And um, Iggy Pop was playing at Viceroy Park here in Charlotte, and he had this all-star band, and Clem Burke was the drummer. Oh, wow. And Carlos Alomar, who did a lot of guitar on um, David Bowie Records. He was on stage. Gary Valentine, who had been in Blondie earlier. Anyway, all these famous people, and we went backstage, and Clem Burke, I, he was just being really nice, and he's like, what are you interested in? I said, I would like to be a singer. He goes, you look like you'd be, you know, that looks like a good role for you. And then he said, um, the best thing for you to do is to have one, one friend. And I said, there he is. There's my friend. But that was such good advice. It was like, if you have one person, then you... You already have a band. So, okay. So, I'm sorry. Me, so, meaning your husband, your yeah. soon-to-be husband, yep. just that so you're I said, confident I've that you can I pointed at Aaron. I said, I have him. We're going to do it. That's awesome. And Clem Burke was like, that's great. That's so funny. How did you come to, you know, get to have a conversation with Clem Burke? Uh, we just probably like wheedled you. our way backstage. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was a formative moment. When somebody gives you a little, like, you know, when you somebody can say, just give me one piece of advice. He... He gave us that piece of advice, which I really did think that was a, a great advice, and I've shared it with other people. I've said, "Well, you know, Clem Burke told us." Now, have you have crossed- one partner in crime, and that's a great place to start. Have you crossed paths with him again to say to remind him of that? Um, I did. Uh, I have a friend who is really close to him, and I sent a little message 
I said, he probably won't remember this, but back in 1981, <laughs> when I had dyed my hair red with, with um, food coloring <laughs> to go to this show. <laughs> okay, yeah. so, so, the, so the band with your soon-to-be husband, uh, that become Fetch and Bones? Mm-hmm. And then in your uh, discography, you, you guys have a self-titled... 1983, you guys came up with a self-titled under Rambler Records. Is that yeah? That was that, uh, like a a bootleg thing. Okay, so that Where wasn't. We had a lot of fits and starts with that band, and there we did like one show with a drummer and a guitar player, and that and then they had recorded it, and he put that out. Oh, okay, so it was unlicensed product <laughs> <laughs> but it's not something you guys took and passed around as like a demo like not what, that no what, no what no. led to you what led to you guys eventually going with uh, uh db the db uh we um label. we played a lot of shows in charlotte and um we were at the milestone opening for a band called art in the dark which was a band from athens georgia and they like flipped over us and they said would you come down to athens and play with us and so um they no one knows about them now i mean some people do but they they didn't become famous like rem or pylon or matthew sweet but all those people were at our show when we went to open for them and so we just got immediately seemed to have this notoriety in georgia in athens and atlanta so when we we could hardly even get a show at the milestone but we were playing like at 688 in atlanta which was the cool club to play at okay um and playing at the 40 watt and stuff like that so we got um a lot of popularity really quickly down there and db records is based in atlanta it's db for danny beard and he came out and saw us and he said i like to put one of your records out and when he tells you that you're like yeah because he did do the first b52 single okay he did put pylon out um so you know you, you couldn't ask for anything more at that point oh i mean like, I, I, that was doing. amazing it was a, like a dream and we were already in the process of saving our money and recording so we um we had been recording with don dixon um at mitch easter's studio mm-hmm. and here at reflection and so he kind of just helped us finish up the record i think we had about half of it done i think he paid for the other half okay um so that came out, so that was uh, Kevin Flounder? Yeah. Okay, and that's 1985? Yep. Okay, so what did they, it, it, what was um, what was it like then? Were, were you guys, all right, we're going to put it out now and we're going to go on the road? I mean, did mm-hmm. they help facilitate that? or yep. did, did you have I mean, management did, at the time? No, or? we didn't. Um, I used to do most of the booking and kind of, you know, the cat wrangling that is being a band member and trying to kind of yeah. manage your band. Um, thankless job, but um, we I think we just immediately went out and toured as much as we could. I think we went out to all the way out to California with that record, and then um, was that a van tour? Like, how did you? Yeah, yeah. We went DIY. all over the place. We got also. I don't know who told me about um, Frank Riley, but he had, at that time, he had a booking agency in New York called Venture Booking, and um, 
Joe Bronner and all these people that became really important booking agents that they started at Fancher. Okay. On Broadway. And, and we went up there one, I sent him some tapes and we went up there and sat down. He's like, yeah, I want, I want to book you guys. And it's, it's like having billions or somebody book you. As soon as Frank Riley's agency represented us, we could get a show anywhere. Okay. We had a record out. We had a good, you know, the good label. And so, yeah, we immediately started touring a lot. Were you opening up for anybody at the time? Just touring. Okay. Just like college circuit stuff. Okay. You know, and like when you start with college radio wanting to play you in Athens and in Atlanta, you know, uh, other southern stations immediately picked up on that so we got we were basically a college radio you know band and could you tell like you you guys kind of you know in the same breath as uh, rem kind of pioneered the whole using college radio to create a bigger thing could you sense that was going on or was oh yeah i mean it? it was we knew it was happening aaron and i'd actually been living in vermont for a year after i graduated from warren wilson from the summer of 82 to the summer of 83. But when we realized it was happening down here and that so much was being recorded right in Charlotte at right. Reflection Studio, we're like, what are we doing up here? Because we didn't really know anybody. And I mean, it was like Mission of Burma and the talking heads. It didn't seem like there was much more going on in the Northeast, really. Right. And so... We we're like, let's go down there. And one of our friends was hanging out with REM while they had recorded the first record. And so by the time we got here, they were doing um, reckoning. Okay. And we just, you know, we moved to Charlotte and walked into Reflections and and met those guys. And did that lead to? I mean, you guys, you guys using uh, both Mitch and Don was that was that? Yeah, that's how we got hooked up with Don. Okay. And so many, many Athens connections there. The art in the dark thing and coming to Athens didn't even have to do with REM, but we already knew them from that recording time. Okay. Um, so hot on the heels of that, you did uh, Bad Pumpkin? Or actually, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm skipping it. So how did you go from uh, DB to Capital? Um, we were doing the kind of touring that I talked about. We were in Nashville one night. And uh, this guy walked up and he said, hey, I'm um, Tim Carr and I'm an A&R guy for Capital. What do you, I, I, I want to see you play again. And um, oh, like, yeah, cool, whatever. We're probably playing tomorrow night in Jackson, Mississippi or whatever. I just didn't know really what to say. But he's like, I want to get some more of the A&R team out to see you. And so I can't remember where. The two other guys that were the main A and R people were they came to see us and that was it. They wanted to sign us and we're like, Well, we're already signed and they're like, Well, we'll work it out with Danny. So then Danny put his logo on that record, but Capital basically I can't remember if we were already recording it or not. But anyway, Danny kinda wasn't in involved really um just not that much, but enough to where we felt comfortable, like going from somebody whose floor we slept on when we lived in, right. when we went to Atlanta to, you know, big Capitol Records, you know. Was there a, I mean, did you feel like you were abandoning him? I guess that's a bad, that's. 
That's we are a little bit. We use, didn't want but, to do Danny wrong. That's for right, sure. Right. We didn't. But, you know, I think he thought it was a good thing. You know, Capital at that time wasn't like Sire or um, any of the Warner Brothers labels that had already kind of figured out this is it's post-punk but it's something that's happening you know grunge didn't have a name yet so it really college rock is the only way to describe it or early alternative um and capital didn't have any any presence with that at all and so they aggressively wanted to sign some bands you know and that relationship ended up with danny being good because i think they signed um zeitgeist they changed their name to the Reavers, but I think they got a couple bands from him. Okay. Um, so he was probably well taken care yeah. of. If, and if those guys any. all ended up being big wigs. We've always worked with people that have gone on to greatness. <laughs> <laughs> like Tim Carr, he signed um, the Beastie Boys. That's his. Oh, wow. He's passed away, but he was a really good friend of mine. And um, he was a real character. So what was kind of their sell to you? Was it just like, we'll give you a more more of everything you know bigger yeah, bigger audience could, or you know we're like we need a van you know we just broke down and you know we go around in a 1972 econoline and they're like well we'll help you get a van or stuff like that you know we were we would always hear from people we love you but we can't buy your, find your record anywhere so we'd right. be like can you get our record in the stores in Gainesville, Florida, you know, and Tupelo, Mississippi, wherever it is we were going, you know, can you please make sure that people can buy our record? Um, and what about the the money? I mean, there's they give you a, a, a good advance or, you I don't know, think they did. Like in terms of business, where was your head at that time in terms of, um, I guess, just making a living at music? We were mostly making our living from touring. I can't even... I can't even remember if we got an advance for that record. Like that, that wasn't a character. Maybe a dangle. tiny one. Um, is it true also, I, I in my notes, that Bad Pumpkin took nine days to record? <laughs> you remember them. Your research is better than my memory. Okay. Um, we recorded it at Reflection, too, and we didn't have a lot of time. Quick. Yeah, very quickly. And the band was... Um, in a more acrimonious state than we had been when we made um, Cabin Flounder. So shortly after that record came out, we like broke up. Okay. Like we couldn't get along anymore with the guitar player or the drummer. And so um, Dana, the bass player, and Aaron and I, we said, let's just get new guys, you know. How'd you go about doing that? It was nasty. And in the end... Um, I'm really, really close friends with Gary, who was the guitar player. But we were all like brats, you know. We couldn't get along on the road. I'm sure well, he probably complained that we were vegetarian and that made him uncomfortable. It was like, you know, just like stupid shit, white people problems. Lots of them. <laughs> Lots. Well, how did you go about getting... Uh did new members come from relationships and friends or did you guys audition, you know... uh Um, hired guns or the drummer clay richardson kind of came through um a friend he was a friend of a friend um and then errol stewart our guitar player he and i had been friends since high school and he was best friends is still best friends with um dana's brother dorn pentis and so um 
he naturally occurred to us. He's also just a, a great guy and a really talented, um, you know, creative guy. And so we're like, what about Errol? And he was, had actually been living in Athens, too. Okay. Another Athens connection I didn't even think about. But he had, um, you know, he was eager to do it. And he could learn all the old songs and then help us write new ones. So it was a perfect fit. And they also, uh, you worked again with Mitch. Uh, did Mitch Easter produce that? Produced, Mitch, uh, we never actually worked with Mitch except for two songs on Cabin Flounder. It was all Dixon. Okay. So, obviously, the, the record company didn't have a problem with that. Like, they didn't kind of force their hand in any, any way or Mm-mm. influence. They were still probably trying to see uh, if you threw it up against the wall, would it stick? Right, okay. And for... And it was still sticking, like we were getting traction, you know, we were touring a lot, and um, the transition with the new members went okay, um, yeah, and we were re- we were ready to make our third record. We had lots of more songs coming down the pike, and with the third record, again, it was Dixon, and I don't think they had much to say. They never told us. You need to be more mainstream, or you need to be more, you know, right. anything. Well, that's interesting. That, that that was one of my questions, but I guess you answered it in in that they didn't have a full grasp of your your movement, kind of this this college rock did, that was yeah. They didn't have a grasp of it for anybody. So that's probably good timing for you guys that not to yep. have a heavy hand from the from the record company. I mean, I think always at the beginning of some any kind of artistic you know movement forward it's not going to be dictated by the guys making the money it's going to be dictated by the artists they're just going to sit back and see how they can facilitate it so i was going to ask you i think around the time of uh bad pumpkin you guys toured with rem yeah in 86 off they were touring for life rich life's rich pageant yes how was that oh wonderful i love that record yeah for one thing as to me, it's their best one. I love the production. I think it was, they they did, I know they didn't see it this way, but I thought Do- Don Gaiman was a great producer choice for them mm-hmm. and um, kind of pushed them in a way. I wish they would have kept on that trajectory, but I don't think they, they saw it the same way we did. But it was perfect. It was all places that people already knew us, and it was neat size venues, like, from like 2,000 to 8,000 people and just, you know, just very receptive audiences. We are had a blast. Are you still on a bus? Are you on a, or I'm still on a van or are you in a bus? We were in a van. Okay. Yeah. Were they in a bus? <laughs> yeah, they had, I think they had a couple buses. And they were with our IRS, right? Is that the original? Yeah. The original um, label? Um, when did you tour or support the replacements? Did you guys... Re- that was um, really early, probably in the um, Cabin Flounder days. We just did three shows with them, and Frank Riley was booking them, so he put us with them. And that was a, and actually, I'm pretty sure that's how Capital found out about us because we did Cat's Cradle, we did the Milestone, and we did six eight eights. We did three shows in a row with them. Okay. In um, Westerberg, I mean, it was just. A fucking amazing (laughs) shit show. Um, But Westerberg was asking um, one of these Midwestern zines, they're like, what have you been doing lately? Who have you been playing with it? 
And he goes, they, everybody pretty much sucks. He said, I liked, um, I think he said Uncle Tupelo, which ended up being Wilco and right. Fetching Bones. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's great. And um, I have a feeling that the A&R team at, at Capitol um, saw that. Kinda. I really kind of think I can't ask Tim Carr that now, but I'm pretty sure because Tim Carr always actually thought that Tim, the replacements record, was What's named after, after him. him. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, because he loved them that much. It was a Minneapolis thing. Yeah, there's, it's funny. There's a lot of love for the replacements. I, when I was uh, trying to get a gig as a drummer, when mm-hmm. you when you'd put the ad in the Village Voice in the back pages, it, the gold the gold standard was to say into the replacements. <laughs> like if you got that, you got the cre- all the credit you needed. Um, what about the Chili Peppers? I also, I also read you opened for them at some point. Yeah, w- that was the last thing that Fetch and Bones did. And so that was, um, oh, so that was late. in that was... support of Monster. Okay. Um, okay, so back in up, you, you started to mention Galaxy 500 was yep. was your uh, second album you did for Capital. Yep. Um, and is that also when you started to get into... Video. I know MTV at the time is like the the thing. So yeah. was that when kind of uh, you guys started getting into videos? Yeah, I think um, Dana's brother Dorn Pentis, as I mentioned, he um, is a filmmaker, and he did some videos for us for that record. Okay. And then I think and and one he did that was really great, and it's a great song off that record, Binoculars. So I love I love that video and I love that song. And and t- tell me a little bit about the process of that. Was that a, another was that another like does the record company say you got five grand? You know, go find oh yourself a, an artist to do I, it. Or I'm sh- I'm sure you know uh, I'm a decent business person, so I'm not going to have Dorn not do you know do something and not get paid. I'm sure we figured out how to do it somehow. Mm-hmm. But. Um, but it's also you guys were like, I know we know someone who can do it. Was it? Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. In terms of the creative process. Yes. It's, it's yes. You guys make the call. Yes. Okay. Definitely. We're like, we know somebody who's a filmmaker and he will do it for a good price, which that's always, you know, record companies are notoriously cheap and um, notoriously short sighted, you know, unless you'd, you know, I can't think, th- you know, have, um, Scorsese direct it, then right. they better just you know save money and pay Dorn five hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> but you never had you know going back to like um, not realizing or know if you had a, an advanced. You never had that hanging over your head that like we've got this big not advance. Too, too much, you know. We got to not it until off, we the, succeed. Not until the last record. Okay. The, uh, back to the you know record company facilitating things for you. Um, you know you mentioned press and i noticed you got a lot of good press you got the yeah. new york times you got the la times you got orlando sentinel you got chicago, the tribune. chicago, chicago tribune lot. so were they was that your record company at work for you guys you know getting you uh you know good pr i think it was that but i think that um fetching bones was a very much a, a forefront of a groundbreaking band right you know there weren't a lot of women fronted bands that sounded like us from the United States. Sure. You know, I had to look to people like Susie and the Banshees or um, X-Ray Specs or the Raincoats to find, or, or only Pylon and the B-52s were, to me, the kind of band that we were um, from the U.S. Right. Doing stuff that, that interested me in the same way 
you know, to me, those were my peers. And when you were touring, were you, were you also doing like radio station promo? Were you going to meet the yeah. radio station people and all that stuff? Lots of times going to college radio stations, sometimes the small, cool commercial stations. So three albums into it, are you still having fun? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty fast, you know, from yeah, it was like 85, year. 86, and yeah, 87. Yeah, I feel like that dynamics changed a bit in terms of uh, people. It, it used to always be, you know, an album a year yeah. from, from, you know, every artist. Um, I also noticed you played CBGB's back. I mean, you probably played it a lot. Yeah. I know there was a, a, was it the CMJ Music Festival or something? Mm-hmm. But was that a place that, you know, you'd probably read about? Were there, were there other venues that you were pretty psyched about playing that you, you either remember hearing about or, you know? Yeah, we played like Peppermint Lounge. One time we played Peppermint Lounge and it was, it was a famous New York venue okay. that, um, it was kind of like the Mud Club. It was okay. one of the, the important formative venues. Mm-hmm. And uh, Capital set this up and it was like, Skinny puppy fetching bones, and they were all titillated that the band bill was a sentence. <laughs> um, yeah, that's funny. Um, what about did you play? Uh, this goes back to REM. I just had this note, but the, did you guys play the Grand Old Opry House? Uh huh. We did that with REM. That tour. Okay. It, but it wasn't the old one. It was the new one. Okay. What, the, what is it now? Is it? Did they go back and refer? The old one is just called Ryman Auditorium okay. now. Okay. I think. Okay. Um, okay. So moving on to Monster, is this when you start to feel? It, I guess is that when you start to feel pressure, or is it? You know, I think a, a little bit. Um, but we also it pressure wasn't so much coming from capital as it was coming from us. Okay. You know, it's frustrating to see. Say, for instance, the replacements become like massive, or any band come become massive, and you just you feel like people don't really get you, you know, or you're only getting so far. Um, and we're also such kind of um, artists and music fans and everything that we are a little bit. the The times are changing. It's been now like four years since right. we. Well, really, five years, if you think the really beginnings of Fetch and Bones were like 83, 84, is like, so things were changing, and we became a little bit interested in music in a different way. It also was really, really tiresome to constantly be called hillbilly, you know, all that kind of crap, the right. cowpunk thing that sure. we were talking about. It's like, you know, I have a an English degree and a history degree. You know, I, my parents are from the north. Right. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a hillbilly. I know that's the little story that maybe it, it. You know, it fits on the matchbook, but you know, the band is much more complicated than that. You know. Yeah. Um, and so we kind of wanted to diversify, um, artistically in some kind of way, just. You know, we were yearning for just things to be a little bit different. So that led to making the album in L.A., is that correct? Yeah, we made the album in L.A. at that time. The most exciting thing was like the L.A. hair metal. 
you know, it's exciting to us. Um, we like the big sound, you know, like the sledgehammer sound yeah. um, of uh, or in excess, you know, a lot of great music that was on the radio that's really 80s and yeah. it had a slicker sound. So we kind of wanted to go for that. And we I've always um, I love the records that Dixon did, and I think that they're amazing, but we wanted to get a different sound. So we said, let's work with a different producer, and let's try to get a big sound, you know. And that was Ed Stasium? Did I yep, say that right? Ed Stasium. And he had done In Living Color, right. that band, um, that ha- and he had also done Faith No More. Oh, yeah. That was big sound. Big sound. <laughs> and so we're like... Let's kind of shed this hillbilly a little bit and and embrace a little bit more of the rock and and try to go for a big sound. You know, we wanted we didn't want to be in excess, but we wanted to to have um, a little bit wider audience. We didn't want to be that niche. Yeah. You know, because at that time, you know. Bands that I love, I've already mentioned Gun Club. It's like you could only go so far, and you know, if they quit playing your song on the radio, that was it. You know, right. it doesn't, it wasn't like now where all the music is all the time on a tiny little thing in your back pocket, right? You know, so you had to kind of attempt to get a wider audience in some kind of way, okay? Now, with this evolution that you guys were seeking out did you have to articulate that to the record company or your a&r guy or yeah know? i think you know we would bitch, it, were... bitch to them we would go why why can't we why can't we uh t- you know have bigger audiences why can't we you know go on tour with this band or that band why the hell are they having a hit and you can't get even one of our songs played on the radio or you right. know whatever right you know we'd bitch a lot about stuff and you know, then their job is to kind of steer you, hopefully, to make more money for themselves. And sure. So business-wise, you go out to L.A., are you renting a – like, how long were you out there? How long did it take to – When uh, we made Monster, we were out there for two months, I think. Okay. Did you guys rent a home, or how did They you? put us up in, like, a little uh, – whatever, temporary housing kind of thing in an apartment complex in the valley. And was that a good experience? Uh, it that, was recording, fun. Recording that? <laughs> yeah, it was fun to meet all the people. Um, at that time, we had become um, associated with Rosemary Carroll, who is Jim Carroll's ex-wife. Okay. Um, and she's a huge lover of strong female vocalists. Through us, she met Courtney Love and um, became Courtney's attorney and there's a a lot of stuff you can look up about rosemary (laughs) carol but um rosemary was cool we loved her and she also um married danny goldberg who's another big wig but um uh gold mountain was his his management company and record label and his dad had a lot of music stuff in there sure big and big liberal in politics and stuff like that anyway um what was i gonna say just uh being out in la recording oh yeah in LA. being out in la it was like some of us were staying in the valley and then dana and errol were staying in beverly hills in rosemary's little apartment 
which was the coach house or the carriage house. Right. Somewhere in Beverly Hills, right across the street from Rod Stewart's mansion. And so we'd see Rod Stewart and whatever wife he had at that time <laughs> zooming along in convertibles up and down the road and going up their driveway. And her bookshelf had all these books, you know, like To Rosemary with Love from Jim, like, you know, just like signed copies, just crazy stuff, you That's know. Funny. Um. Were you guys getting out, too, and seeing, you know, like you mentioned, yep. the hair metal scene was kind of taking yep. root, and like, what were the, this was 1989, so it's, is it like Motley Oh, it was Big Guns N' Roses time. Okay, GNR. Yep. Um, I loved a band called Junkyard. I loved a band called Kill for Thrills. Um, we were go out uh, every, like, Wednesday night, there was some big club night that we'd go to, and... Um, the guys from Jane's Addiction would be out there and L7 might be doing a set, you know, just like, just soaking up, kind of living. We never had, I've been to New York a zillion million times at, at this time. And then in my life now I've been there a million times, but I've never like lived, lived in New York, but to live, live in LA, even just for two months at that time, it was really exciting. I bet. Sounds great. So you come out of there, what what happens that eventually leads to uh, the demise, I guess, of Fetch and Bones? Um, again, just being, you know, 29-year-old punks, um, in, and I mean punk in not a good way, <laughs> punk in a punk-ass, dumb-ass kind of a way, you know, we just didn't really realize how good we had it, how um, lucky we were, uh we had Dana had some problems with alcohol. Errol had some substance abuse problems. Um, we were frustrated with the label, with management, just a, a myriad of kind of small things. And Aaron and I just, in general, weren't happy um, creatively. I think. Were you it, married at that point? No. Um, I think we would have, I th- I think if, if my 57 year old brain was in my 29 year old body now, I probably could have worked it all out and I could have been, um, more diplomatic in steering the band, right. um, artistically and business wise, but, um, we just weren't able to do it. And Aaron and I were like, yeah, we're just done. We're just we can't work with these guys anymore. And um, and so we didn't want to do it anymore. And right at that time, we had just done this big tour, as you mentioned, supporting the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which was another huge success. T- huge audiences and big, really, you know, strong response for us. Right. And we were riding on cloud nine on that. And then... Um, Rosemary says, well, Capital, um, it's your contract. You know, it's it's coming up and they don't know if they want to renew it or not. And I'm like, yeah, fuck them. <laughs> if they don't, she's like, well, they want, they want 30 days to decide if they should renew it or not. And we weren't really going to be doing anything in those 30 days. Like we weren't going to really, it was at this time of year. It was like at okay. Christmas. And um, I'm like, if they don't know whether they want to pick us up, now they can fuck off and um and so she said yeah if you feel that way then 
that's what I'll tell them. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I do feel that way. And everybody else does too, you know. So, okay. So that, that was, that was the end of that. What, yeah. what came next? Well, we did have a big publishing deal that had been signed about six months before. So that, probably that and just, um, that, that was actually, you're talking about money. That was a big right. amount of money. Because it was an advance on two records, and they never got the second record. So when all the big corporations saw the Hope Nichols name, they're like, "Yep, yeah, she took us for $150,000. So you didn't have to She's give, off the to, pudding list. You didn't have to give any of that back? It wasn't all 150 for me. No, um, we did not. And we were, all of us were signed to that. So all of us had a share of all five of us had a share in that in that they attempted to get you know records and material out of us and and that's how i became uh i started working with gold mountain management danny's okay danny's management company and we did a bunch of stuff um and rosemary would call and say yeah now that mud honey's broken up i hear they're looking for a new singer i and somebody said it was going to be you and I'm like, what do you mean? Who who would even know my name in Seattle? Who who would think of me to sing for Mud Honey, you know? And then Mud Honey, um, so those people ended up being in like Pearl Jam. It would be like she'd yeah. always drop these little little tidbits. I think fishing to see if I would go for it, which would <laughs> usually mean that I'd have to, you know, abandon Aaron, abandon right. my life which I chose to live in Charlotte because my family is here. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so before we leave, uh, before we leave Capital, one other thing, just in, you, when you brought up the, the publishing, it made me think, you guys got placement in a movie once mm-hmm. called A Matter of Degree. Yeah, A Matter of Degree. Were you in that movie also? Yeah, we're in it. So, I And mean, I, I'm not sure if we're on the soundtrack, which is, again... Some, something kind of wrong but um, John Kennedy Jr.'s in it and John Doe from X so did you guys play a band just yeah we were like yourselves? the band on stage in a party okay. was that fun it was really fun <laughs> yeah they flew us up to um, uh, uh, to go to Vancouver somewhere no it was in Rhode Island oh okay and um, anyway it was really fun it was yeah. on the campus of Brown Okay, that's a beautiful area. Yeah, in Providence. Um, okay, so uh, up next is Sugar Smack. Yep. Is that so? That w- another one with fits and starts. Trying Aaron and I tried to do some stuff um, with Rosemary's help. I went out and met with Tom Wally and played him some stuff. Aaron was doing a lot of sequencing, mm-hmm. and it was kind of the idea of um, of going with that almost like Brit pop sequence dancey kind of stuff because we were really interested in dance and kind of um some of the stuff that had meshed well when we were doing fetch and bones and like touring with chili peppers like our more funky songs Mm -hmm. like glove crushing and stray so we were kind of going dance has always been something interesting to us and it's funny you mentioned madonna but it's that kind of idea but i um we didn't ever want to call it Hope Nichols or it be a solo thing. It's not. It's like always been Aaron and I together. Um, 
and that wasn't really flying so then we thought well we'll just do a band and we started getting people together and it was still kind of dancey with sequencing but that was very impossible to do on us with no budget and like touring little clubs mm-hmm. we would do pop-up like at park elevator which was andy castanis's dance club um but it's just really hard to do like track stuff without being set up as pros okay. like so what eventually led to um, you guys working with Martin Adkins? Well, we did um, we did one little record on our own that was kind of sequency. Zaja, yeah. Okay. And out of the blue, someone called me, who was Martin, saying, um, "You know, my ex-wife, who's my best friend." Um, said that you're a very strong vocalist and I have a band called um, Pig Face and it's an industrial band. And um, all these people um, from KMFDM and Skinny Puppy and um, Killing Joke, um, just like some of the bands I really liked because they're dancey, but they're hard. He's like, would you like to come and sing with this band? Well, I should have known immediately that he had a talented singer. And why is she not singing with him? So anyway, I did a couple tours, and that was really fun. Did a couple records. But the long and short of it was it was not a good um, relationship. He's, I, it, I don't think that he is the straightest arrow <laughs> or the most honest business person. And um, we did do a Sugar Smack record with him, and it came out cool. That was kind of a mixed bag as far as recording, because it came out more like a pig face record and less like what we sounded like live. It was a cool experiment, but he had one vision, and that was his vision. And if you didn't fit into that little cubby hole, then you weren't, it wasn't going to really work out. And we're, you know, as you can probably tell already, I'm not a cubbyhole person. <laughs> the cubbyhole of Invisible Records did not work for us. Well, you, you, you mentioned something I, I meant to bring up, and that was, did you, do you feel like throughout your career, you guys were known as such a great live band? Were, was anybody capturing that in the studio to your liking? You know, that's funny. That's true. All always heard that from day one you guys are incredible live can you get it on record and i just think that's very hard um it's an energy that it's just how can you do that how can you go from one dimension yeah you know from three dimensions or more to one it's just not really possible i mean you hear that a lot i guess that's a ultimate compliment for you know i very high compliment you know especially especially these days because it's performing that really pays the bills now because, yeah. you know, no one's yep. you know, no one's making money off of records. Um, so, Sire, how do they come into the picture? Oh, well, after Invisible, we just did a record on our own, and it um, that's called Spanish Riffs, and it's very punk rock, and there's lots of screaming and lots of angst in it. You know, at this point, (laughs) almost a decade worth of fuck you to the record industry. (laughs) Um, There's 
that on earlier records too it comes out a little bit on the invisible record because the the capital thing was was disappointing you know to right. say the least but you didn't have necessarily a bad taste in your mouth about a major did you coming out of capital i mean we did i a little bit? i think that it, as i look back it probably i think the f- the fault rests many many places of right. why fetch and bones didn't get you know, we're, we were a couple years ahead. Right. You know, we were just like literally about six months before grunge really hit, you know, mm-hmm. and the whole Seattle thing where I think people would have gone, oh, these guys kind of go into that, you right. know. And if Capital had hung on, I think songs off Monster would have meshed with all that kind of stuff that sure. was that you now hear on 106.5 still like, you know, how many decades later, yeah. you know, the same songs. Um, as well as new ones, but um, no diss to 106.5. But um, you know what I mean. So there's a time, you know, yeah. there's always a time, and, and the that band was just early, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but how we got to Sire was we, um, people are always nosing around, and somebody called me one day out of the blue when I was at a different shop than this one. Um, and well, uh, started asking me what was going on, what what was I doing? And he was a promo guy named Brian Landau, and he lived in Chicago. And he um, just kind of, you know became a good friend and became interested in what we were doing. And um, he uh, began. He's like, I want to help y'all make another record. And we're like, cool, we're ready to make a good one. We knew a good studio because we had just recorded there. And he actually had a relationship with a guy who was um, in Chapel Hill. And so we made this record kind of on spec. He would literally send us giant boxes full of promo CDs that we would take and sell to make money to like be in the studio to eat and to, and to stay in a hotel and We'd go back and forth to Hillsborough to this little studio that was in like a strip mall that used to be a feed store (laughs) and work with this guy named Mark Becker, who I think the whole experience blew his mind and he left the music business forever. (laughs) But during the process of that, um, I was I turned him on. I turned Brian Landau on to Muscadine and um, he was working basically like a spec deal with a lot of different people, but he ended up with Seymour. Um, and he had a bunch of Rifkins that were his buddies. I don't know who the Rifkins are. I can't, I've blocked all this out of my mind, but <laughs> they got him hooked up with Seymour and Seymour said, I'm taking the whole shebang and um, I'll take, I'll take Snagglepuss. I mean, I'll take Sugar Smack if I can have Muscadine and I'll take Muscadine if I can have Sugar Smack, that kind of okay. thing. And so we went to them that way. But I think really he, his love was for Muscadine. Okay. But it's funny. I mean, Sire was kind of, um, they had a good pedigree in terms of punk and new wave. So if you, Impeccable. Guys, if you guys were starting to, you know, get a little punkier, as you said, yeah. on Spanish riffs. Yeah. I mean, like a- if you, if you sign the pretenders, then you, you know, you're a God to yeah. me. But um, <laughs> he was out of it really. He, Seymour, he already was really out of it, falling asleep at meals and at concerts and just barely seemed to be involved. Keeping up, sure. But he did sign us and we got 
like a little tiny bit of money to tour for a little while. And then he's like, they're like, done. You're done. Well, I, there's a there's a quote from you oh. <laughs> I'd like Ooh, to read. Okay. <laughs> but it says, uh, we got screwed because yeah. that's just the way it was. The mysteries of the major labels. Yeah, I mean. But in which what sense do you feel like? I feel like that's in context of Sire or the Sire yes. deal. Was the Sire deal? Was it? You, were you guys not under contract to do this like one album? And let's see how it goes, or what? Well, I guess what's the nutshell of this? Because whole thing? we were kind of signed through Brian. Brian was supposed to have a label, but then once they signed the deal and they got us and Muscadine, it was like they never really gave Brian the money, mm-hmm. so he didn't really have a label, and then they were like, well, we're not really supposed to help you. We're just like distributing it. You know, it's supposed to be Brian, and Brian's like, they've screwed me. They didn't give me the money, but, you know, and then somebody just the other day said that they had heard that Sire had signed a lot of people and then com- just run out of money, and right. as soon as they ran out of money, they they everyone had the same experience that we did. It's like, okay, cool, you're we're done. Mm-hmm. You know, your record's done. We're not promoting it anymore. And um, by that time, with Sugar Smack, our drummer was in grad school in Connecticut, and our guitarist was living in Atlanta, and um, had a great job down there and so we just it we couldn't really keep that band together anymore it was nothing acrimonious at all we were just like yeah we love you guys but i think this this is done you know um i have to ask this question just because it's just yeah uh you did say you did a lot of fun stuff at the time you like the weenie roast is that the k-rock this k-rock weenie roast in charlotte okay sorry because when you said, the, I'm like, what the hell's the Wayne Roast? I thought they that had was one o six point five. I don't know if they still have. I think they might still have the Weenie Roast. Yeah. They might call it something different. But they used to have a big annual concert, okay. and they would have a side stage. You know, they might have Space Hog or somebody fun and current that on the main stage, and then they'd have a side stage. Okay. So we did that a bunch. Um. So I guess so after. Sugar smack, sugar, yes, sugar smack. Too many S's, I get them mixed up too. <laughs> um, and correct me if I'm wrong, does does it become a conscious decision to be like, you're at a certain point in your life yes. to, ha- to start a family? Yes. And that's what you did? Yes. And it was also a conscious decision to not try to um, in any way engineer a, beer, a band for success. I had literally managed both of those bands, done all the booking after we weren't with Frank Riley anymore and Venture dissolved. I did all the Sugar Smack booking. Um, and I was just like, I can never call another club. I can <laughs> never send out another press kit. I want to make music with my friends because I am an artist whose favorite medium is performance and songwriting and singing. And I want to keep doing that. But it's just going to be for fun. Right. It's funny. So did, did you ever have management throughout your career? Hardly. Okay. There, at one point, um, Jay Ferris and Rosemary co-managed us. And Jay went on to do um, TVT Records. Oh, yeah. Um, that was, that was his label. He bought he bought that TVT logo and made that record label big. So. Um, and then, so, Snagglepuss. Yes. So That's, we did four records with Snagglepuss, all with Don Dixon. And all 
it's all independently. All independent. Your, yep. Your, Save our little pennies from rock shows and and pay Dixon to come and record mostly in the living room at our house with dogs and kids running around and <laughs> you know just doing it. That's great. How many um I know nothing about your family. How many children do you have? Two. Okay. One sixteen and one ten. Oh boy. <laughs> good times. Yeah, it is good. <laughs> um and that brings us up to uh the present with its snakes. Or I guess it's how long, how old is its snakes? Its snakes I'm I'm thinking we've been doing it since two thousand let's see, I think maybe two thousand fifteen might have been our first show. Okay. So a couple of years now. Yeah. Um, and you have a record out. Yep, we have one record, and we're and working on another one working on right one now. At the moment, what's the what are the plans? Um, with this one, we'll um, we're gonna actually have a CD release party. We're gonna <laughs> we'll do. Um, Does that mean you didn't have one for the first one? No, we just had a listening party. <laughs> okay. Um, we're just again, we're in the mindset of still doing it just for fun. And we've been wanting with um, It Snakes, our friend Greg Walsh was somebody that we've done some side projects with for a long time. And we're like, when when there's when we're going to do another band after Snagglepuss, then would you play with us? And he waited like 10 years. <laughs> and, he's, and we're like, Greg, it's time. He's like, okay. <laughs> His kids were older and... <clears throat> Snagglepuss never would have quit except for Amy, the guitar player. She moved to Bolivia. And so um, it was one of those things like she was 17 and didn't play guitar. And we're like, we're going to do a band. It's going to be called Snagglepuss and you're going to be the guitar player. And she's like, "Okay, I'll go buy a guitar and I'll see you tomorrow at your house. (laughs) And she went and did it and had her. Friend Joe show her like three or four bar chords, and that was it. She showed up for practice, That's ready so to go. Hey, so three chords in the truth, isn't that <laughs> Bob Dylan's uh, philosophy? Yep. Um, well, I end each each show with uh, five questions. The final five Ooh, questions okay. that everybody gets. Yes, I'm ready. Um, that's what I was looking for. Let me see if I can remember them. The first question keeps evolving, but it was, uh, "What's your most valuable musical possession?" My most valuable music. Musical possession. possession. Yes. Ooh. Or I could rephrase it. It's it's like I said, it's evolved a bit, but I, in, in my last interview, it was uh, a capo, which I was like, a capo? But it's almost like, what would you want buried with you of, <laughs> of your, you know, a music-oriented uh, material? And it can be sentimental uh-huh. value or it can be monetary value. Like what's I'm just going to say my voice because people say I have a, a voice that's distinctive and um since uh I don't have I don't play guitar. <laughs> I don't I think it's that. So also the drums, you never play Did you ever play the I know you're playing no. the drums now and it's snakes. Yes. So are you who's teaching or who how did that progress? Well, that progressed out of the um band that I do called Plaza Family Band where we um we sing like favorites old time favorites kind of for kids Mm -hmm. um this is with mike strauss and a few different local people um but in that band 
I'll be singing like she'll be coming around the mountain and I'll be clapping and stomping my foot and singing at the same time. And and one time when I was doing that, I thought, man, I think I could be a drummer, you know, and um, <laughs> so obviously have a very low bar for drumming. But um, that was it that I thought, you know what, in the next band, I'm going to do something different because Aaron has always he started out playing guitar mm-hmm. in Fetching Bones, then he played bass in Sugar Smack, then he played drums in Snagglepuss. And um, I've always admired that. And so I thought, damn, I need to do something. I need to step up. And then also, honestly, I love Iggy Pop, but a 70-year-old female Iggy Pop <laughs> is not compelling to a lot of people because of the um the way our society views women Mm -hmm. especially in comparison to men and so i thought i need something to do to occupy all that energy that i have on stage because i love to perform right but i don't need to scream and jump around i want to direct it in a different way so i thought playing drums because it'll hem me in yeah and to start with the low bar that i mentioned i have the possibility to become a good drummer a really good drummer and um i mean i never thought i'd say i thought phil collins was a badass but (laughs) (laughs) he kind of is he he totally is he kind of is it's funny he's getting a lot of respect lately someone was saying how uh might have been lord how much they really dug him. i love lord um you and the critics she's made a lot of uh she's awesome top 10 2017 lists uh, question number two is, uh, if I were to give you a million dollars to give to one charity, who gets it? Mm, probably, um, ooh, I, I like the Nature Conservancy. Let's say, hold as much land as you can say, fuck mm-hmm. Donald Trump. <laughs> it's very topical for, yeah. uh, for, for the, when Patagonia, this, this who has have like four million followers on Instagram, says, "You know, fuck yeah. Donald Trump." Did you see that? Yeah, like God, I was really proud right of now. that. Yeah, it was nice. Um, on a lighter note, uh, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> are hard questions um no no right or wrong answer hail to the chief (laughs) (laughs) only because i like that song and i like a big band sound how's that go (laughs) something with a (laughs) a good one a big brass band okay it doesn't have to be hail to the chief on the flip side of that what's uh stuck on repeat in hell Ooh. maybe this one's easier man these are good um, breakfast at Tiffany's. That's, oh, <laughs> I think it's that. I'll. Uh, I don't know who I'll that's second, by. I'll second that. Oh that's my uh, God. breakfast at Tiffany's. Ah, I should know that. I've got. But good that you've blocked got it. Got a dumb brain for that. It's okay. Um, final question: What was your uh, what's your best live concert experience? Guess seeing as another seeing as another band, yeah. Ooh, not your own. Yeah. Um. Gosh, there's a lot of good ones. Um, but I have to say, 
I really the the most memorable one. I've said this before, but um, growing up at, in Davidson, I got to see a lot of amazing shows because there would be play the college. Yes, a great shows, and I was nine, and Chicago. Oh yeah, came, and this is in Love Auditorium, which is a a little tiny, probably like maybe seats like thousand eight hundred maybe seated of course sitting with my mom (laughs) and my whole family i don't know who all was there but i know my mom was there and um they come out and you know they have speaking of horn sections a a massive horn section at that time and it's like 25 or 624 it's that period where it's like just like and literally feeling the the motion of the air coming off stage so it's rock and roll and it's horns and it's loud as fuck and my mom is going why do they have to be that loud and i'm just like pinned to my seat like just like completely lit up like every part of my brain lit up like who are these people what is this sound what is this whole instrumentation you know because it's pretty soulful i mean chicago some people might say, you know, the seventh pit of hell might be playing right. some later Chicago songs. Sure. But those early ones are really rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially a tight band. That, to, I mean, Unbelievable. To see that live must have been great. Yeah. Um, did your mother, is she like, I'm not surprised that you took the <laughs> path you took? She will. She, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, because I knew, I know her. She um, is past, but... You know, when the Beatles came out in 1964, she was she thought that was the best thing ever. That's cool. And she was, um, you know, in her late 40s. So she was never a fuddy-dud. Right. She liked the new things. She was into computers when they came out and, you know, and was emailing way, way into her <laughs> 90s. So, um, and going online and doing stuff. So she was always an early and and joyous adapter at whatever was coming down the pike so mm-hmm. and one last question coming out for the you know these live performances um doing what you've done for so long with so many influential people were you ever privy to seeing you know you know people noodling backstage or you know like rem at a party play or you know any of these you know just a, a very private uh moment where someone's being oh, musical yeah. a lot too many of them Too to even remember. Okay. <laughs> One of my f- favorite times to think back was when we had first moved back from Vermont and we went to see um, REM recording in the studio at where the Gibson apartments are now. Mm-hmm. RIP Reflection Studio. Is that right up here? Yeah, it's right on Central. Okay. Um, that's why they called it the Gibson, I think, because they tried to tried link to, it in some way yeah. to the history that was demolished. But... Um, Michael was going through something. They were recording um, Reckoning, and he was going through a little something, Dixon told me later on. But he was kind of in a healing mode, and so he was eating uh, raw garlic, just sitting there, like, eating raw garlic. I'm like, man, that's hardcore. But if Michael Stipe does it, it must be okay. So I'm, like, putting raw garlic in and, like, going, eyeballs rolling up in my head. But it was... uh, at that time, like, um, I think he's got to be one of the people that I spent the most amount of time with that was almost deified for a lot of people, you know, around 
the country at that time, R.E.M., was the beginning of college rock. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really were the very beginning of it. And they meant so much to people. Yeah, totally. They certainly did to me. Yeah. You know, loved the, loved the records and, and loved everything about it. Loved their kind of DYI. And they were Southern and they were punk. But, you know, they were so melodic. And, and they were just definitely doing their own thing. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Um, well, Hope, Hope Nichols, I'm glad we finally got thank to sit down and do this. Thank you very much for asking me. It was <laughs> hey, just my, fun. Thank you for doing it, and it's been my pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate you coming by to see me and on location. Now, exactly. I'm going to go well, look around and see if I can find something <laughs> for myself now. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you, Hope Nichols. FYI, the group behind Breakfast at Tiffany's, Deep Blue Something. Right. Uh, you can find Hope and the band It's Snakes on Facebook and Bandcamp for music gigs and other info. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be back next week with another new episode featuring a very well-known producer, engineer, musician who's worked with R.E.M., Wilco, Pavement, and many, many others. So tune in. It promises to be a great show. I'd like to give another shout-out to Dylan Mitchell for providing the new theme music for the show that we'll be using for 2018. Lawyers for the Black Keys can send a cease-and-desist order to dill at rockonomicspodcast.com. I'm kidding. All right, we're done here. Good night, Cleveland.